We are a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. That is who we long to be, and we're here because of Jesus. And if you haven't noticed, this morning we get to uh, have some baptisms. So after the sermon, we will be baptizing some new believers among us, and so that's a great encouragement. Also, we're going to be at the beach tonight from 5 to 7 p.m. You can get details online. And then lastly, if you would like to dedicate one of your children, we're doing parent-child dedications on August 16th, so let us know uh, by registering online, and we would love to, to do that with you on the 16th. And as we continue worshiping the Lord, we're going to read from Psalm 150. If you'd be willing to stand with me, uh, I will read Psalm 150 for us. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And Father, we ask that you would help us to praise you with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength this morning. We, we are weak, we are broken, we, we wander all the time, and yet you are good. And so bring us back, reorient us to what is true and what is real and what is right, and show us that Christ is the Lord of all, and let us know him more and worship him more today. Amen. Oh 
standing and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 4 this morning. Pastor Mike will be preaching from chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, and so we're going to read those together. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. You can have a seat and as you do so, we're gonna pray together. We are gonna remember one of our missionaries, Rick Johnson. Um, Rick, if you're here, can you just wave? I don't think he is. He's often uh, here with us, but we're going to pray for Rick. He works with incarcerated youth in, here in Orange County, and so uh, just all the impacts of COVID and everything have been pretty difficult on his ministry, so we're going to pray for him as one of our missionaries, and we'll pray for our morning as well, so would you pray with me? Father, we 
We come before you in the name of your son and because of what he has done. We have no right apart from him, but because of him, you've given us joy and peace and hope. Lord, thank you that your gospel is real and effective and powerful. Lord, we praise you for being the God who allows even evil and oppression in your infinite wisdom. You have allowed it. You govern over it. You rule every millisecond of time and every molecule in the universe. You are sovereign over it. And we, we love that you are in control of all. Lord, we want to know you more this morning. Show us more of yourself, Father. We pray for Rick and for his ministry uh, with incarcerated youth here in Orange County. We pray that you would allow him to have a clear and a bold gospel witness. We pray that you would save the young men that he gets to work with. We pray that the gospel would be clear and that you would open their eyes and their hearts to the truth. Father, this morning, let your word penetrate our hearts and our minds. Give us clarity in our thinking. Give us deep feeling for what is real and what is true and what is right. And Lord, help us to see and to love you more as the God who is full of grace and mercy and truth, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, righteous, just, pure, beautiful. You are the fountain of all joy and all truth. And so we want to delight in you. Lord, we need your help. So please help us this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his glory. Amen.
and compassionate and merciful to sinners like us. We thank you that you are a God who forgives our transgressions and, and puts them away from us as far as the east is from the west. Lord, we confess this morning that even this week we have sinned and fallen short of your glory and we are in such great need of your mercy. And we thank you and praise you that you give it to, to all those who trust in Christ. So we trust him this morning. He is our King and Savior, the only one who can rescue us. We love him. We ask that this morning our hearts will be turned towards you in worship as we hear your word now. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Morning. Let's play some word association, shall we? Word association, okay? So, what's the first thing you think of when I say oppression? Oppression. You're thinking of a lot of things right now, but whatever it is, it's sad, and it's painful, and it's about persecution and abuse and ill treatment, tyranny and exploitation and cruelty and ruthlessness and harshness and brutality. It's about injustice and misery. It's about suffering and pain and anguish and slavery. It's not a happy word. Oppression. Too often we see it, those in positions of strength and power, lord it over others, and don't we feel it when people are oppressed? We feel it. And often you feel helpless to help. Ecclesiastes confronts us with some probing and very uncomfortable questions. Where am I going in life? What am I doing? Why am I living? What am I working for? When you get into Ecclesiastes 4, where we're at today, it poses a new question. And the question is simply this. Am I oppressing or am I blessing people? Am I oppressing or am I blessing? You need to see Ecclesiastes through a whole Bible lens. And when you do, what you'll notice, just like Jesus said, Jesus said the two greatest commands are love God and love your neighbor. 
If you're oppressing people, you're not loving your neighbor. If you're blessing people, you are. Hating neighbors has always been a thing, but 2020 has uh, brought it to a whole new level, hasn't it? Uh, 2020, we could dub it as the year of the mask. We could say it's the the year of, of mercy, but I think it's also the year of the mean streak, right? I mean, you've seen stuff come out of people you kind of thought might be there, but didn't think they would really say in public. The year of the face mask, but also uh, the relational face plant as people start to talk about things they know little to nothing about. They're arguing about all these things that they really are not an expert in, right? I think we're going to look back at 2020 and think this is one of the worst years of our lives and one of the best years of our lives, a lot of blessings, a lot of amazing things that God has done in this year, but I think we're going to look back at 2020 and think of it as one of the most disturbing times that we have ever lived through. Fear-mongering, race-baiting, virtue-signaling, faith-shaming, hate-spewing, tremendous amounts of oppression that we have witnessed, and, and a horrendous apostasy from the faith. I mean, there were a lot of churches that started in January 2020 and said, they went with the obvious. We're going with 2020 vision. And here's what they're seeing very clearly. A lot of people abandoning the Bible more than ever. Social issues getting pressed into the word of God. And so a lot of people are jumping ship from the Bible thinking they're fighting the Lord's battles. (laughs) And Jesus spoke about oppression, railed against hating neighbors. He fixed a high value on God first, others second, which puts you and me in at least third place to start. Today we're diving into Ecclesiastes chapter four. We've been going verse by verse through this book and we're gonna see a new theme emerge with this question of am I oppressing or am I blessing? The new theme is community. Community, it's it's we, not me. And we're so focused on me, are we not? The idea of we, not me. This chapter is all about community, and we, not me, drives it. So we'll be looking at that for several weeks. Solomon begins by addressing, right off the bat, injustice and the absence of comfort. In verses 1 through 3, as we're going to look at today, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 3, we come face to face with the agony of oppression. There's an agony to it. It's painful. Because when, when me overtakes we, chaos ensues. <laughs> chaos results. And here's the point for you today. God comforts his people in community so that we do not suffer oppression alone, but look to the sovereign God together as our only hope. God comforts his people in community. You do not have to suffer oppression alone. But we are to look to the sovereign God together as our only hope. What I want you to notice in this passage are are three points. First, the the atrocity of oppression, verse 1. Also in verse 1, the agony of oppression. And then in verses 2 and 3, the answer to oppression. The atrocity, the agony, and the answer of oppression. Well, first, the atrocity, uh, the abuse of people with power. 
Look at verse 1. He starts off this way. He says, I looked and I saw all the oppressions. Like, can you imagine like, them all being paraded out there? He's, he's looking at them one by one, and he sees all the oppressions done under the sun, and he says this. He says, behold, the tears of the oppressed. So Their tears are streaming down their faces, but no one is there to comfort them. Does that not crush you? And then he says, on the side of their oppressors, there was power. And he says it again, but there was no one to comfort them. I'm, a, I'm the guy that cries at movies. This is going to make me cry. My daughter Sophia, she's right there. This is going to make me cry, isn't it? Right? You know it. Kyle and Dalich in their excellent Old Testament commentary said, this is all about the wrongs suffered by man from man, it's the, and the, it, it embitters the life of the observer. So you're watching, and you're seeing, and you see these, these horrible things happening. It affects you. We've moved from the unjust decisions in the courts in chapter 3, the transition Transition is now made to the subject of this unmerciful acts, the cruelty of mankind against mankind in oppression, inflicting it upon one another. I mean, whenever there is power, there's a temptation to abuse it. Uh, this can be on a national scale. You see this in Proverbs. In the, in the case of rulers, you see it at a local level. Ecclesiastes 5.8 talks about it. You see it even in the church. This is why in, in 1 Peter 5, the elders are commanded to not lord it over those that they are to shepherd. Because oppression can happen even in the church. Comfort is that God perfectly judges oppressors. Psalm 73 tells us, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. I was in a slippery place this week. I was fishing um, in the sequoias and feet went right out from underneath me. Uh, on a slippery rock. You know, it happens. But God sets the oppressors in a slippery place and makes them fall to ruin. They're destroyed in the moment. They're swept away utterly. Romans 12, 19 tells us, never avenge yourself. Leave room for the wrath of God. It's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God's in charge of that. Derek Kidner put it this way, our first need is not to teach God his business. The first need is not to teach God his business, but to learn the truth about ourselves. Ecclesiastes has been putting up a mirror in front of us, and it isn't painless. It's putting up a mirror in front of us, exposing our sin nature, exposing our tendencies. And you know what the, the crazy thing is? We, we're shocked by it. Like, you'd think... After this long, we wouldn't be shocked by how sinful we are, but we are. I mean, there are firsthand examples. You can all give firsthand examples of oppressions that you have watched with your own eyes. I was in Indonesia in the late 1980s, twice for missions trips, and I was on the island of New Guinea, and I was in Irian Jaya, the left side of that island was part of the country of Indonesia, and, and I saw with my own eyes uh, Indonesian military beating unmercifully the, 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 the natives that I was there to, to serve. Couldn't do anything about it. They had guns. <laughs> but I, I remember someone was taking something off a helicopter and they slipped and fell and they were beating this guy because he was like trash to them. 
Remember being in India in the late 1990s and you see the results of the India caste system. I remember being in, uh, walking around a, the most beautiful like, hotel I've ever seen in my whole life. And then uh, out in the street, in the gutters, people are, are just lying there. No one's talking to each other. There's no way you're getting help if you're lying in the gutter there. I mean, multitudes of oppressive acts, physical, mental, spiritual. I mean, think about what's going on right now. I mean, every moral and righteous foundation that we have in our society is being torn down brick by brick. I mean, what shall we do when laws are, are not being upheld? When morality is undermined and evil is unchecked? I mean, what do we do when a casinos and marijuana dispensaries are favored over churches? What do you do when the scriptures are undermined again and again and again, and that those that profess faith in Christ seem to support the rising tide of secular ideologies? What do you do? I mean, just yesterday in Portland, they were burning Bibles in front of a federal courthouse. It's not peaceful. There were riots, there was gunfire, arson, stabbings, other violence, well through yesterday morning. This is ripped from the headlines. This happened yesterday. Oppression, unrestrained evil. Well, here's what we all need to recognize and realize and admit, acknowledge. We're all guilty. Every one of us is guilty. Augustine put it this way. Oh Lord, everything good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. Some of us have a hard time saying, it was my fault. You know, we cannot eradicate oppression, but we can overcome it. We can endure oppression together and, and resolve to not be oppressors. That's what you need to do today. Just, you read verse one and you feel the pain and you watch and look and going on what's going on in the world right now and say, I re resolve to not oppress anyone. That is a worthy goal. That is a godly goal. To not be oppressors. To never oppress anyone knowingly. To confess and repent instantly when you realize you have. How about if you accidentally offend? I'm, I'm sure I do it all the time, you know? Some of you are just too kind to tell me, but we accidentally offend at times. But if you realize that, just God knows your heart, but be as careful as you can with the way you live and act without throwing away your biblical convictions. But you should be careful. I mean, you gotta ask yourself the question, who might I be oppressing? We're all guilty. Who might I be oppressing? I mean, who do you need to apologize to? What oppression are you witnessing that you could actually do something about? Something you can actually do something about beyond posting on social media. You're kneeling or wearing a t-shirt, like doing something in someone's life to help. The atrocity of oppression is an abuse of people by powerful means. And he says, I saw it. I saw this. I saw all the oppressions and the tears. No one to comfort. This could happen by the sword, could happen with the pen, could happen with your vocal cords, where you abuse, you neglect, you devalue. 
I mean, here's why it's happening. We shouldn't be surprised. Mankind has never gotten over the power grab that was the Tower of Babel. Our, our ingrained inclination is to want to rule and be gods ourselves. That's why the Bible roots you and, and anchors you into reality. That's why I'm just hammering on, you got to know what the Word says. I mean, who would have thought that it would be novel or outrageous to stand for the national anthem before a basketball game? Like, what's the deal with that? The press couldn't understand how a black man, one solitary black man, would not take a knee, would not choose to stand for the national anthem, would choose to stand, would not wear a BLM t-shirt, would not put a social justice message on his basketball jersey. And they kept asking him. I, I watched the press conference after the game. The guy had done, a, had done a great job playing basketball, and all they wanted to ask was, so why did you decide to stand when everyone else was kneeling? The basketball press conference. His answer, I'm a Christian, and black lives are supported in the gospel. He said, I am black. My brother lives in America too, and he's black. And, and he basically preached the gospel to them again and again and again because they kept asking him the same question. You can go check it out. Jonathan Isaac of the NBA Orlando Magic showed us how you stand up to the oppressive mob. You say no, and you preach the gospel. That's what you do. You preach Christ. I mean, you get biblical clarity at an NBA post-game press conference. He was oozing the Bible. The guy knew the word. You are going to get shattered by life if you are not saturated with Scripture. God wants you saturated with Scripture so that you would ooze it. You would quote the text, that you would show people that your ideas come from a biblical worldview and that you would exalt God so that everyone would be overwhelmed by his greatness and his authority. And they would know their dependence. This is like Paul in Acts 17. He's waiting in Athens and he is, is having his spirit provoked, provoked in him as he sees the city full of idols. You don't have to open your eyes very wide right now to see the idols in your own heart or in your neighborhood or on the TV screen or on your computer screen. Well, what did Paul do? Was he a snowflake and said, oh, I'm always getting oppressed? Or was he like, I never get oppressed? I mean, you know, go to both ends of the spectrum, why don't you? No, it was, it's right there. He was in the sweet spot in the middle. And he, and he reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace daily. He brought the word of God to bear upon the situation. That's what you need to do. Those saturated with scripture aren't so easily shattered by life. And, and oppression is never yesterday's news. It's always on the front page. Always. People cause pain. Powerful people oppress people. You can try to fix it. You can try to intervene. You can try to help. And still, oppression remains. It just, it's the fact of life. You're a sinful person living in a sinful world around other sinful people. It's an atrocity, isn't it? Isn't it an atrocity? 
But that leads you somewhere good, and it leads you to pain. It leads you to the agony. And, and the reason why that's good is because it means you're processing it and not ignoring it. There's the agony of oppression. He says, again, look at verse, keep your eyes on verse one. There's this agonizing sadness. I saw all the oppressions, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and there's no one to comfort them. He says it twice, no one to comfort them. What is he getting at here? What is he getting at? He's getting at the fact that there was no community around these oppressed people that would comfort them in their oppression. They were solo. They were lone ranger. They were alone. You're not built to be solo lone ranger alone. The tears of the oppressed, the double emphasis on no one to comfort. They're being mistreated and there's no one putting an arm around them and holding their hand. No community to defend them. crying out, they're shedding their tears. People made in the image of God and there's no one to comfort because they have no community. You need to resolve today to foster community, courageous comfort in community. The agony of oppression is suffering alone with no one by your side. A lack of Christian community. I mean, solitary confinement breaks the spirits of those locked up. You gotta be on the lookout for people that are, that are hurting. And by the way, go beyond the veneer where people just say, oh, I'm doing well. And you might just under the surface find the deepest hurt that you've come across in your life so far. Have you experienced God's comfort? If you're a Christian, I know you've experienced God's comfort in Christ as you've trusted in the finished work of Christ. As you've trusted in Christ who died on the cross in your place, shedding his blood, paying the penalty that your sins deserved. And you believe and you're forgiven and you're, you're made new. Christ was oppressed so that we could go free. And I know that if you're a believer, you have experienced the comfort of God in Christ. I, I know by your knowing looks and your nods, yes, I have. And you found that comfort in the deepest pain of your life, haven't you? But the question is, who can you comfort with the comfort with which you have been comforted in Christ? I just got a note today from a friend who's dying of cancer. They wrote me a note to encourage me. Did that not blow me away? I'm like, wow, I need to write more notes to people. I'm serious, I'm like, wow. You thought of me and you're the one that I, sh I should be writing you a note. Life is not meant to be lived solo. We are people of community and of the Trinity is an example. I mean, God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Perfect example of unity and community is unity is perfect. Ours is imperfect, but it's a reflection of his. You can't eradicate oppression. You can't even always accurately name it. You can't, you can't always identify it the right way, but you can resolve to support each other and build up one another and encourage one another and carry each other. We get to carry each other. Uh, we're having baptisms today at the end of the service and cool, you know, horse troughs, I love it. We are country. And 
you know, baptism, when you come to faith in Christ, baptism is an initiation into the family. It's like putting on the wedding ring at the, at the wedding ceremony. It's like, it doesn't save you, but once you get saved by Jesus, you go and get baptized to profess your faith in Christ, and you're like, wait a minute, why did Jesus tell us to do that? I don't know. But he told us to do that. So we're doing that. Believer's baptism, right? Well, it's an initiation really into the family, into a local body, but then you gotta ask the question, then what? And if it's okay, so now you're on your own, something's amiss. It's gotta be major support. It's gotta be people holding your hand when you're going through oppression. It's gotta be people at your bedside when you're dying of cancer. It's gotta be people talking things through you when you're struggling. It's gotta be uh, people opening the Bible with you and helping you understand the faith. It's gotta be praying together with other believers and all the things that Christians do, that you do in community. It's we, not me. And we say, we, we hear it all the time right now, oh, we need to do better. Christians need to do better. We need to be much more generous with love not withholding it. I mean, think about it. Your family and the family of God should be the safest place in the world for you. Where you're not thinking someone's talking behind your back or doing something underhanded or whatever, but you would actually go, no, everyone's sincere and they just want to help me grow in Christ. This is how it should be. I mean, think about it. You have to be careful with the power you have. Your words leave more of a mark than you realize in good and bad. You've gotta be courageous and stand up for what is right. You gotta be unified with fellow believers and not guilty of oppressing. I love it when I come across a book where the, the title tells me everything and I still wanna read the book. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield uh, said it so well in one sentence, the gospel comes with a house key. That we need to be practicing radical hospitality and helping and comforting and pointing people to Christ and helping people grow in Christ. The gospel comes with a house key. You think about church membership. You think about when you join a local body of believers. When you get saved by Jesus and, and, you're, and you're, you're, you're putting your faith in Christ and you're, you're saying, look, I surrender everything to Christ and, and he knows more than me because he's God and I'm gonna believe what the Bible says and I'm not gonna believe what my, my head's telling me. When you get saved, you're part of the worldwide body of Christ, but you're to get into a local assembly where you're gonna be known and loved and challenged and helped and, and everything else that happens in Christian community when sinners get together. In fact, a local body of believers ought to be the most unoppressive place you've ever been. I was thinking about this this week, just the whole thing about oppression, and it's so easy to think of the biggies, right? But I, I really think this is true, that every disappointment in some way is a little oppression. And again, don't be a snowflake on that one and go, well, I'm always oppressed, and don't be like, no, I'm never oppressed. It's, you know, it's always somewhere in the sweet spot in the middle. But every disappointment is a little oppression, and let me tell you a little story. I, you know, I was up in the Sequoias this week, and I was fishing one day, well, every day, and uh, one of the days, my daughter Savannah, we have five kids, and my daughter Savannah, my fourth youngest, is that right, fourth youngest? She says to me, let's go fishing together. And I'm like, yeah, daddy-daughter date fishing on the streams and the sequoias, what gets better than that? So we get on this, this stream, 
And um, she's like, well, can you put the bait on my hook? Because it's a gross bait, you know, you got the fish eggs and you got the power bait and all the stuff. And, uh, and so I did that and we're there and she's over here and I'm over here and then we move and, and, I, and I changed the bait, I think, twice. But then something happened to me. I, something kicked in. I, I get, it's like a magnet, but I, the, the stream. <laughs> and I, I can get lost in a stream like all day long fishing. My family's like, where were you? We thought you were dead, right? You were gone for five hours. I'm like, I was fishing. Well, I, I, I remember there was this pool that I had been fishing in that there had all these fish in it. And it was like my nemesis. Like I couldn't catch any fish in that pool, okay? I, and I, went, I, I found that pool again. And I knew where I was going when I walked away from her. I'll just get me down over here, you know, but I think it was maybe 400 yards. It was not in earshot, and so she's screaming for me, which I couldn't hear. She thinks I hit my head on a rock and, and died. I'm like, well, she told me that later. I'm like, well, why didn't you come find me? That would have been helpful if I died like that, you know. Uh, but what she did, she went back to the car and put the fishing pole there and wrote something on the back of the, uh, of the back dust in the window. She wrote, Dad ditched me. I went back to the cabin. So I'm, I'm looking for her and stuff, and I find, her, I find the fishing pole, I see the note, I erase it like any smart guy would do. I erase the note right away because the rest of the family is going to get really mad at me. So I erase, erase the note, and then I go down into the cove where the, the rest of the family's fishing, uh, swimming. And what happens is they all see me, they're like, where's Savannah? I'm like, oh, she went back to the cabin. And everyone's like, well, that's like a mile. What? No, no, no. So I'm in big trouble, okay? For a while, I'm telling you, it was, it was hours. And she and I talked, and she goes, I was really upset with you. I was really angry at you because you, you, you left me. You abandoned me on the, on the stream. You're not supposed to abandon your family in Christ. You know, it's interesting. When you come to die, all your selfish acts, they're going to die with you, but they'll, all your selfish pursuits will be for nothing. They're just empty. It's just empty. But your Christ-honoring pursuits, your other-oriented acts, they're going to live on. That's what we want to go for. Where you courageously decide, I'm going to comfort others in the midst of their oppression, whatever that might be. It's like God saying in Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, oh, comfort my people. Do that. I mean, how does Jesus comfort? Matthew 11, he says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Those who are connected in Christ-centered community have someone to comfort them when they are oppressed, when the tears stream down your face, and you can't stand the pain. You've got brothers and sisters that come around you. Because you haven't been riding solo like a lone ranger, but you're, you put yourself at risk among fellow sinners. And so I think the atrocity of oppression leads to this agony, which means that you are processing it, but there is an answer. But it gets worse before it gets better, but you need to stay with me on this. Look at verses two and three. The answer to oppression. Look at verse two, he says, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Like, whoa, hold on a minute. So it's better off dead? Yes, because there's no more oppression. 
It's in the context of oppression. And he says, more fortunate the living who are still alive because they're still getting oppressed. They're still seeing it. Presumably these are God-fearers that are being comforted by God, but they're seeing and experiencing good, not evil. Because they're dead. That the dead are more fortunate than the living because they're being comforted by God now. This is all about God giving comfort. I mean, how many times have we or you or me said this? Like, it was merciful that God took her because she was in so much pain. It was merciful that God took him because he was in so much pain. We, we do say that we thank God for mercifully taking, delivering a poor, tortured sufferer through death. Well, then you get to verse three and then all bets are off. You're just like, wait a minute. Because then he said, better than both, better than the dead and the living are, is the one that never got born. <laughs> he who has not yet been born? And he says, no, because, because They've never seen any oppression. They've never seen any evil. Now look, anyone who hurts, anyone who feels deeply, you and I, uh, Solomon, Job maybe, may wish on occasion that they had never been born into all the sufferings in the world. Job talked like that. And here is, here is Solomon saying, look, the one who never gets born doesn't have to go through all that pain. I've been struggling with that verse this week. Now, what's he saying? Let me tell you what he's not saying. He is not saying that life is not sacred. You can never use this verse as a comment that life is not sacred. Abortionists will do that. Anti-life people will do that. Anyone who's against God's good design will do that. But if you don't know, a half a mile away, unborn boys and girls are being murdered every day at Planned Parenthood right there on Tustin Avenue and the 22. Every single day. You can never use this as a comment that life isn't sacred. The comment being made is a statement of fact. If you're already dead, you can't get oppressed anymore. And if you were never born, you can't see the evil deeds or be oppressed. But it does not mean that you should just go die or that you shouldn't be born. And what happens is the living have to witness all the oppression. You just have to do it. You have to go through it. I mean, do you realize we pay people money to make us laugh because there's so much oppression in the world? We want comic relief because we can only take so much. This is why you need someone to comfort you when you are oppressed. And this is why you need to comfort people that are oppressed. And God comforts the oppressed, sometimes with death, no more oppressors, with his presence in Christ if you're living, with his word if you're living, uh, with believers, with friends, with the church, with, with growth, with, with, with glimpses of his glory. And you know what Jesus says? about abusers of power, Matthew 18, they will wish they had never been born. We need hope for now and for eternity. The answer to oppression is not to institute more oppressive ideas or regimes. The answer lies in the comfort of God, the, the hope found in Christ, the, the beauty of Christian community, not in Marxism, not in social justice. And what you need to do today is resolve to point people to true hope. That we, not me, community, not isolation. 
that you would say, I'm gonna comfort anyone I come across that is mourning, and I'm gonna point people to hope in Christ. And that when your head hits the pillow at night, and you ask the question, did I bless or oppress? You could actually say, you know what? God used me to actually be a blessing and not to oppress anyone. Was Jesus oppressed? Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus died on the tree of pain. That we could go free, not be oppressed by the penalty, the power of sin. One day we'll be free from the presence of sin. Every believer has that hope. I think this moment that we're living in right now is a, I think it's a tipping point of apostasy and atrocity. I mean, think about it. We're oppressing others as we're protesting the oppression of others. Uh, we have the double whammy. Things don't just fall apart in life. We mess them up. Because the gospel doesn't just come with a house key, but it comes with a warning. And the warning is, mess with the gospel to your own demise. Mess with it to your own peril. And, and by the way, entire communities can be deceived. And we often think of oppression as like a sledgehammer, right? Well, sometimes it's more like a fishing lure. I used one of those this week and actually caught a fish with it. I don't usually do well with fishing lures. But a fishing lure like gets the fish going after it. Boom! Oppression is often like a fishing lure. You have to make sure that the we, not me, that you're dealing with is gospel truth and not pagan lies. God comforts his people by his presence, by shaping him, by his, by the, by his perfect word, and, and oppression grows where the truth is neglected, where the truth is ignored, where the truth is abandoned, where the gospel is, is abandoned for falsehood and deceptive oppression. Larry Alex Taunton noted this, there are two graves in London, two graves. The first is in North London, Highgate Cemetery. Among 53,000 graves, it's a monument to Karl Marx. Marx lived in London the last 34 years of his life. He refined his radical secular ideology there. He produced Das Kapital, ideas that wrecked half the world and now threatens to wreck the other half. And then the second grave, on the south side of London, at West Norwood Cemetery, among 42,000 graves, the grave of Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Karl Marx lived from 1818 to 1883. Charles Spurgeon lived from 1834 to 1892. They both lived in London at the same time. They were both doing their work at the height of their powers at the same time. Both men were contending for the souls of men. Marx was preaching salvation through bloody revolution. Spurgeon was preaching salvation by the blood of Christ. At that moment in time, England was, was the center of everything, but it was wrecked. Uh, the Industrial Revolution had brought human oppression. The urban poor was crowding the slums. Child labor laws did not exist. Factory smoke was choking the air. Coal dust was filling people's lungs. Marx did not allow facts to dictate his conclusions. He was like the woke media, the woke policies, the woke academia. He began with a conclusion and worked backwards. Facts didn't matter to him. He was allergic to work. He never held a steady job. 
Here is what he said. Communism abolishes eternal truths. He said this in the Communist Manifesto in 1848. It abolishes all religion and all morality, and it should abolish the family. Can you think of any groups that are standing for those ideas right now? Now, there was no indication that Marx and Spurgeon ever met, but they were well aware of each other. Spurgeon preached against Marx. The, the, the contrast in their messages could not be more stark. Spurgeon knew that socialism was more than economic or political. It was a spiritual question because it took God out of the equation. It denies God's existence. Atheism masquerading around as a political philosophy. In 1855, he warned of communists who wanted the real disruption of all society at, at present established. In a sermon on Isaiah 66 on April 1889, Spurgeon, recognizing that many had confused the gospel with the cheap secular knockoff sold by Marx, said this, by the grand truths of the gospel, sinners are converted and saints edified, but they are going to regenerate the world by socialism and set up a kingdom for Christ without the new birth or the pardon for sin. The Lord has not taken away the 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Marx was a Romans one hater of God defiantly set up a false god against the one true God. He offered a counterfeit version of salvation. He knew, Marx knew how easily many confuse truth for error. And so he exploited it. He wrote in the Communist Manifesto, nothing is easier to give, nothing is easier than to give Christian asceticism a socialist tinge. Here's what Spurgeon said. The great schemes of socialism have been tried and found lacking. Spurgeon said, let us look to regeneration by the Son of God, and we shall not look in vain. This battle is going on right this moment. The battlefield is the entire world where we are to be bringing the gospel. Marxism has morphed. It's disguising itself in, its own, in our own time in sheep's clothing of racial equality and so-called social justice. It oppresses the masses. But the gospel is not is never going to change. The gospel is not chained. The gospel is free. The gospel is unchanged. Its power to transform societies is one of its most underrated benefits. When you get transformed by the gospel, there is a corresponding outward transformation of your family, of your neighborhood, of society. And this passage began with words I returned and considered. I looked, I saw. Compare the words with Revelation 7, 9. I looked and behold, hold another picture. A great multitude praising God for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. One day, Jesus is going to end all oppression. Keep preaching Jesus, keep clinging to Jesus, keep trusting Jesus. All oppression will cease. Until that time, God's call on your life is to resolve to not oppress, resolve to foster community, to resolve to point people to hope in Christ Look with hope for the promise of Revelation 21 where Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither that shall there be mourning nor crying 
nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Until then, God's call in your life is to use every ability, every gift, every talent he has given you and put them at God's disposal as you fervently trust Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are good and that we are dependent on you. We, are, we, we confess we're guilty of oppressing and hating and unloving. We focus on me, not we. we. We use people for our purposes. We think only of ourselves and what we want. We're filled with selfishness and hatred. Father, forgive us. Change our hearts. Please turn us in, outward in love towards others and just rescue us from ourselves. Oh, sovereign Lord, make us a loving people that trust you and show the world what you are like by our love for one another. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to do some baptisms right now. What a, a joy to practice believer's baptism by immersion. Uh, bap, baptize means to dunk. So we dunk. Oh, do we dunk here? We dunk three times even. Once each in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have believer's baptism. We're going to have Carolina and Jasmine and Josh. I just want to say one thing as they come up and get ready. And then after I say that, uh, Randy and Connor will take over from there. But baptism does not save you. Baptism is something that Jesus instituted for us to publicly proclaim our faith in Christ. So it's for believers. The Bible teaches believers' baptism by immersion. Believers' baptism, where a believer in Jesus, in obedience to Christ, professes their faith. That's why each one will give a testimony of faith in Christ. Uh, may it be for your encouragement if you are a believer. Uh, may it be to call you to faith in Christ if you are an unbeliever. And may we all be blessed as we witness these baptisms. Okay, let me invite Jasmine up for our first baptism. What a blessing. Okay, and she's, she's going to share a little bit of her testimony, how she came to know the Lord. Okay, hi. So um, when I was 11 years old, in sixth grade, God saved me. I did not grow up in a Christian home with Christian parents. My parents got saved when I was eight years old. And when they got saved, they faithfully shared the gospel to my sisters and I on a daily basis. I eventually had a realization that my parents' salvation didn't mean that I too was saved. I needed to be saved from the holy wrath of God. I remember I was in the shower and God opened my eyes and ears to him. I realized the weight of my sin and that I am a sinner and that I need Jesus. I was in sinful rebellion, following the passions of my flesh. I repented of my sins and put my trust in Jesus. God, in his mercy, saved me through Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross. Jesus took the punishment I deserve. He bore my sins, and he paid the penalty, penalty that I could not pay. Then he was raised on the third day, giving me a new birth into a living hope. Now God has given me a new heart, new desires, and a new life in Christ. I live my life dependent on his grace, seeking to glorify him in all that I do. Thank you, Jasmine. Okay, let's have you step into the, the yeah, you can take your shoes off if you don't want to get those wet. Okay, let's see. So you can face your family. Step on this side. Okay. 
So, have you trusted in Christ as your Savior, the forgiver of your sins? Yes. And out of obedience, you want to be baptized in his name? Yes. Okay. Based on your confession of faith, we will baptize you. Awesome. Well, this is Josh Ortlip, and Josh is now going to share his testimony with us. Hello, everyone. Um, it's truly an honor, and I'm very humbled to stand before you today to share my testimony and to be baptized. I can say today with the utmost confidence that Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. I'm a sinner, and it is only by God's grace and Christ's atoning work on the cross I am saved from an eternity in hell. Because of this truth, my faith is in him. Christ's work in my life began when I was very young. I was born into a Christian household and attended a local church with my family throughout my childhood. Biblical teaching, principles of Christianity, and community with other believers provided me a foundation for my faith that remains with me to this day. In junior high, I remember making a formal decision through prayer to follow Christ in response to the gospel. Through high school, my knowledge and appreciation for the gospel matured on an intellectual level. However, it wasn't until my senior year of college that my eyes were opened how far I had fallen in love with my sinful thoughts and actions. By his grace, I can look back and say that I was living out of a self-centered hate for worldliness. I was in love with the principles of Christianity and not Christ himself. Since graduating from college in 2019, God has worked mightily in my life through the centrality of the gospel, which perfectly demonstrates God's love and glory far beyond my comprehension. Romans 8, 38 and 39 demonstrates God's sovereignty over my life, as it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. By this token, I desire to be baptized in obedience to Christ's command in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and as a personal declaration of my faith in Jesus in response to everything he has done for me on the cross. Josh, you can jump in there. It's a good thing you're so short. Uh, and Josh, yeah. L let me ask you, uh, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your only Savior and do you desire to follow him as Lord? Yes. And do you desire to be baptized today in obedience to him? Yes. All right, well, based on your profession of faith, I'm about to baptize you. Okay, and we have Carolina coming up. 
what a joy to participate with, with these guys today. And you have your testimony ready for us. Here you go. Thank you. Hi. Well, I was born in Russia. And when I was a baby, my mother took me to a nearby village to christen me into the Russian Orthodox Church. It's a rite of tradition. Everyone does it. I always knew that God existed because my grandmother talked about him. And when I was little, I would fear that he, I would always make him angry. I didn't even know the name Jesus until after I came here. And it was mainly through my neighbors that I learned who Jesus was. God used Christine Kennedy to minister onto me, and she's over there, um, through the years and um, fed me. And I remember on a rainy day when she was taking me home from church with all of her kids in the car, she asked me if I believed in Jesus and if I wanted um, him to be in my heart. I said, I do. And she helped me pray for the forgiveness of my sins and for the acceptance of Jesus in my life. I always wanted to be a Christian and to pursue God, but growing up I didn't go to a church, so I stumbled and I wavered a lot until a family friend invited us to Grace Church of Orange in 2016 for an Easter breakfast. And as soon as I laid eyes on Grace Church, I felt led to continue going. And every Sunday I would come, it was like a breath of fresh air to my soul. And it felt so right to read the things that I was reading in the Bible. Um, in 2017, Matthew Halbrook bought me a MacArthur study Bible. And Lord, I read it every day. And Second Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself to us and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And there was a point where I realized this, and I, I looked at myself and just how much I had changed inwardly. The old things that I liked and the things that I thought about before, they didn't appeal to me anymore. And I can confidently say that that change did not come from me. It came from Jesus. I, I'm here before you all today because Jesus loved me so much and he gave his life for me. And all I know to do is to obey him and to pursue him and to love him as much as I possibly can. And Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, we all, tears of joy. We love hearing testimonies. I love hearing testimonies. I get all choked up all the time. I could listen to testimonies all day long. Um, who has your towel? Yeah, Jono, come on, bring it on up. Cut, may shortcut this way, right up front. 
Okay, you can go ahead and step in. Carolina, you have confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you desire to be baptized? I do. And out of obedience to Christ, you um, submit yourself to his obedience, correct? Yeah. Yes. Now, based on your testimony, we want to baptize you here. So let's do that. So amazing and so exciting. Uh, let's all stand together and uh, sing one song together uh, to close our service today.
sovereign in all things and he providentially orchestrates things and it could be that you came into this tent today uh, not believing in Jesus Christ and maybe you've God's opened your heart to the gospel today and you've either come to faith in Christ or you want to we'd love to have some socially distanced interaction with you about that Uh, you may be a believer that just realized wait I never got baptized and so please talk with us about that as well Praise God for the power of the gospel to transform lives. Um, As you leave today, by by the way, thank you so much for coming today. And as you leave, please exit to your right, the playground side. We do have another service coming in that starts at 11.15. And so um, feel free to hang out anywhere else on the the campus, just not inside the tent. Just make sure you go quickly, okay? All right. And um, we're going to end with Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all. I'll miss you next week. Uh, I'm going to be in Tennessee with my in-laws for a week, but we'll be back on the 16th. And you'll be in good hands next week as Matthew Holbrook preaches uh, the word. And uh, have a wonderful day. God bless you.